as it existed in, in New England, I think was uh, more of a spiritual connection between family members and the dead body. It was a sympathetic connection. It wasn't, there were no, no dead bodies coming out of the grave and attacking their family members, biting their necks, sucking their blood, none of that. There's one outlier case of that, and that's, you know, that could be an elaborate, an elaboration to make it a better story, I'm not sure. But in all the cases except one that I found, that there's no uh, talking about the bodies, the dead person coming back to harm the living. And it wasn't even that they were blaming someone like the mother-in-law or the daughter or Mercy Brown for killing family members. It was that there was some evil thing that had inhabited the body of this corpse. Mm. So the soul had already departed. Wherever it was going to go, it had departed. And in the meantime, something evil, an evil angel is called it sometimes, that occupied this person's body, taking residence, say, in the heart. And from there, it was drawing life out of the family members, maybe even literally blood, but drawing the life out from a distance, we call it sympathetically. So the implicit in this belief is that the connection between the living and the dead is never completely severed. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the Rising from the Ashes, my family thinks I'm crazy, Swapcast edition, special edition. <laughs> and today, Roman and I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Bell about his very interesting book dealing with New England folklore, uh, vampires, and his book is titled Food for the Dead. So naturally, we got into some pretty... Uh, morose spooky topics roman you invited me to to participate thank you uh for, course, for doing that this was such a fascinating conversation i'm excited to present it to both our audiences but what inspired you to look into this subject and uh to reach out to to dr bell well there's a couple things uh first i got deep into some rabbit holes of uh, medicinal um, cannibalism and clinical vampirism. When uh, we were doing the occult book club with Juan and Thomas and Gabe a few months back, um, this book called The Book of Werewolves by Sabine Gold. And that really started me uh, down this strange esoteric looking into our history of medicine and how it kind of like medicine and folklore medicine and these like strange stories of vampires and werewolves and how they're kind of always grouped together in stories 
but how um, our ancestors and and um, different cultures have been actually imbuing them into their societies. And, and so that really fascinated me. And then just on Esoteric America, we were looking into um, looking into your hometown, New Haven, Connecticut. And I found his book through that research. And I was like, oh my God, there was a huge case of swath of what they were considering to be vampires in New England back in the, uh, the mid 1800s and uh, even before that. So like that whole, that whole time period. So it's super fascinating. And I was just like, I actually, I emailed him in the middle of our esoteric America podcast. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, yeah. Sometimes I'll do that. If I'm on a whim, I'm like, and I find somebody's email, I'm like, well, I'm not going to wait because I might forget to email them. So I just do it right then and there. And, um, and we conjured him up, man. And, uh, it was a great show. And, uh, thanks for holding it down half the time because, I, uh, I did have a little bit of trouble hearing what he was saying. Some of the audio is just a little bit, um, but we're cleaning it up. So what you guys get to hear is the golden, golden age. Yeah, it'll the, sound um, way better. It was really more of a volume issue. I I don't know where what you're working with over there, but I have like a an onboard volume so I can like turn up what I'm hearing. You know, so I was able to hear him pretty well, but I had to like jack the volume up a little bit on yeah. my end. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah fascinating conversation uh maybe not the typical uh, guest for conspiracy podcast he he did seem to have more of a uh normal um perspective on the whole world of uh disease and germs and all that um so you know trigger warning folks he does talk about (laughs) that uh pandemic pandemic that we all know and hate here in this world but uh, yeah he didn't seem to have that same conviction as us but uh don't let that dismay you is still a very fascinating conversation from the guy who's been you know educated by the american uh institution so he's definitely reflects that but he also has mm-hmm. some uh some i guess non-conformist views as well which i appreciated so yeah fascinating discussion uh, thanks, folks, for tuning in to the Rising from the Ashes podcast or the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. If you're not subscribed to both, go into the app that you're listening to this show on and make sure you're subscribed to the Rising from the Ashes podcast or the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, depending on how you met us here at the crossroads. But uh, let's get right into this fantastic conversation with Dr. Michael Bell. Cheers. two a one hey everybody welcome to rising from the ashes my family thinks i'm crazy crossover conversation with a another fantastic guest today i am 
so enlightened and uh, joyous to be here with my buddy Mark because this is from his neck of the woods, this topic we're going to be talking about, with an author that is uh, prolific in American folklore and this specific case on his book, Food for the Dead, about the the New England vampires. And if you guys haven't heard about this, you are going to hear about it. We've done some history of vampires on our live stream on Sunday and the weird, sticky uh, history of medical cannibalism and the strange things intertwined with all of that. So, hey, here we are. Um, hello, Mark. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Glad we're doing this swap cast. Uh, thanks for all the... Rising from the Ashes audience members and everybody who tunes into Roman and I's Esoteric America. But let's uh, let's invite our, our guest into this conversation. Michael Bell, how are you, sir? This is a, a fantastic opportunity. You've spent many, many decades looking into these very fascinating subjects. So for two young guns like Roman and I, it's a true privilege to have you here. And I, I hope we can do a lot of listening. And, uh, you know, that's... That's a, a tall order for my friend Roman, but uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll be sure to keep him, uh, you know, at bay while we while we ask you some really good questions. But maybe I can throw a question your way. Would you like to introduce yourself for our audience and maybe tell them how you got interested in folklore to begin with? Well, my name is Michael Bell, and uh, I live in uh, Rhode Island some of the time and Texas the rest of the time. And I got interested in in folklore, which I didn't know at the time it was even folklore when I was very young, growing up listening to family stories. Uh, many of them were what you would call like supernatural stories. They were on the cusp between something that could really have happened and probably didn't. And that's what made them so exciting and, and real and unreal at the same time. Even at a young age, my mind wanted to grasp the dialectic, what we call now the dialectic of the legend, because it's on that cusp of, of being believable and not believable. And you hear it from your relatives, and you say, "Well, they don't, they don't lie to you. They don't lie to little kids, do they?" And they they tell you things that they said really happened to them that you can't fathom. So I started thinking about these things. And I went to college and got a degree in anthropology and archaeology and, and got my master's level work done in that. And uh, make this long story shorter, at that point I decided that I really wanted to go back to my love of, of folklore. And so I went to UCLA with my wife and both got master's degrees in folklore and mythology. Oh, that's and, amazing. Uh, waited around for the PhD program to materialize, which didn't. So then we packed up a U-Haul truck and our and our baby daughter and dogs cats and went to Bloomington, Indiana, where we got uh, into the PhD program at Indiana University in folklore. And that's where I got my doctoral degree. That was uh, many years ago, like 43 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. You <laughs> clearly have, have studied a lot and, um, being a, a native new Englander, I can attest to the fact that there are plenty of stories about all sorts of things, no matter where you look or where you grew up. 
uh, everything from the more common uh, big hairy ape wild man kind of stories uh, to things that are a little less tangible like uh, will-o'-wisps and floating ghost ships but this topic that we're going to get into today it's in a it, it's in a different realm of folklore I would argue and I'm sh- I think you would agree because it touches on something that humans are still very um, insecure about, and that is our health, right? Mm-hmm. Especially over the past few years. I mean, the, the insecurity around health has reached an all-new height. But um, back in three, 400 years ago in the colonial days of New England, there was, I would maybe guess, a similar amount of insecurity around health because they were in this new land that was all you know fearsome and and wild to them right and naturally when you have people in a foreign land uh, they bring with them the culture of their home and impose it on this new world right and and we see that with the the vampire Mm -hmm. (laughs) the imposition doesn't always work out that well because Mm -hmm. when you're in a new environment both physically, cultural, social, uh, what you brought with you may not actually work that well. And so, obviously, people are very adaptable, and their culture is adaptable just like us as human beings, physically. And so, you know, you adapt to, to your situation and your environment. So the folklore that maybe you bring from your old uh, culture, your home, where you came from, if it doesn't fit exactly, you find new ways to make it work. And that, I mean, that's that's the the dynamic and static aspects of folklore. Both, it's always the same in a sense, but it's always different because every iteration is, is unique, unique and new. Mm. And so that's a, a long way of saying when people came here and they faced. Uh, uncertainty, the folklore did come into play because that's, you know, that's where uh, folk beliefs really uh, are activated, particularly the kind that people call superstition. I try to avoid the term for some reasons, but what are mm. those reasons? Yes, yes. Well, I think if if you're doing something, and I look at it and I say that's just an old superstition. It's not telling me too much about what you're doing. It's just telling everybody about how I feel about what you're doing, mm-hmm. which is very re- re- you know relevant, or it doesn't reveal too much either. So I just I try to take uh, all the beliefs that and practices that that people perform and look at them you know from their own context first, get the insider's point of view, you know the esoteric point. Mm, the inside, yes, the the flowing the flowing waters of knowledge you know, inside of us, like the blood that carries information. Um, <laughs> so you, uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. You were talking about you know people coming to what was them a new world. Of course, it wasn't a new world for the indigenous people that were already here. Mm-hmm. We were uh, invading immigrants, really, um, but. What was found here was 
very different in some ways from what people left behind. But they brought other things with them that were undesirable, such as the diseases, like smallpox and consumption, which is what the, I think the major uh, medical topic uh, on the table today for this talk is uh, a disease that was mysterious because people didn't understand the germ theory, or at least that uh, it, in terms of consumption until late in the 1800s, 1882, was I think when Edward Cook, a German medical doctor and scientist, uh, announced his discovery of the, of the bacillus, the germ that, that caused the disease. So until then, it was a it was a total mystery. And people who would get the disease would be diagnosed. If they went to a doctor, whatever passed for a doctor in those days. And we're talking the 1700s, 1800s. And if the doctor was honest, what the doctor would say, well, you have consumption, and there's not much we can do about it. It's basically. Thing. It's in you know it's, it's in the hands of, of God or whoever, mm. <laughs> and people were not willing to accept uh, a death sentence. And I think that's true today too. We have diseases that we don't understand that we can't cure that we try to cope with, and, and if the medical profession says really there's not much we can do, we can give you very little hope, then people are going to turn somewhere else for answers. Because you have to have answers, and I think that's within us as human beings. Mm. It's hard to say, oh, I don't know. We can say I don't know, but we don't want to accept that. And so you turn to something else, and folklore, folk medicine, always has an answer. It may not be the scientifically valid answer. It may seem crazy to some people, but at least it's an answer. Well, and, and I and, think that's what it means with the consumption rituals in New England. Mm, yeah, and I, I do want to learn more about that. I do want to comment first. I recently learned about a gentleman former governor of the Connecticut colony, I think the first governor of the Connecticut colony, named John Winthrop the Younger, and he was uh, the son of the more famous John Winthrop from the Massachusetts history. And one of the things that this John Winthrop the Younger did was he acted as the sole doctor for the entire colony uh, of Connecticut. He would see many, many patients, and one of the things that he was known for were his alchemical concoctions right these sort of potions of antimony and other sorts of mineral blends and yeah when you read that kind of these accounts of you know him experimenting with herbs and learning from tribes about which herbs to use and then blending those with metals you know it's it's fascinating but it also seems very risky the way they were doing things back then you know you could easily uh maybe fall victim to the potion uh, as quickly as you would that that illness that you were uh, originally stricken with well most medicines have risk yeah look at any look at any uh prescription medicine on the market now and you're going to read the fine print 
<laughs> it's the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you're, you're you're taking this to like maybe relive to relieve an unsightly skin condition. Okay, you want to look nice, but then you start reading the side effects, and it's, you know they end up with could cause death and everything in between. So you think about, well, is it worth taking this risk just so that my skin will be clear or whatever, whatever condition we're talking about. So I don't think, I don't think the alchemy, you know, the alchemy and side effects and all the other stuff that maybe Winthrop was into were something new. And it's, it's not something that's, that only exists in the past, you know, it's still with us. We don't have to turn very far to our own recent past and look at the, the coronavirus variants that have been circulating now for, what, three, three years. And, of course, that was mysterious, especially when it first started. And so we were getting a lot of folklore generated about what can we do about it? How can we treat it? You know, everything from injecting bleach to holding your breath, sneezing, and and then there were wax coming out with products that they said, you know, to cure this or keep you or prevent you from getting it. So in that sense, we haven't come as far as we like to believe, I think, in terms of our of our uh, thoughts about how to treat uh, physical ailments. So if we look back at what they did in the 18th and 19th century New England, we don't have to break our arm patting ourselves on the back over how far we've come. <laughs> we don't have the knowledge than they had 200 years ago. But we're not smarter than they were 200 years ago. We just think we are. Mm. Right. Right. And, and, and as you said, you know, people were coming up with all sorts of uh, folklore over the past three years to try to come up with a possible solution to this. And I love the way you use that term because it reminds us, me, Roman and everyone listening, that folklore is not something that only exists in the past. You know, it's something mm -hmm. that's alive. It's a living body of information. So uh, maybe we're getting a little too far afield, but to circle back, you mentioned a, a consumption ritual. Was this a practice undergone by someone who was, uh, let's say, um, you know, told that they had consumption, then they would go about this ritual to maybe cure themselves? How, what, what did that entail? Well, the, the ritual itself, that because it's part of folklore, there are different variants of, of how to do it. But basically, there were several uh, acts that you have to perform, mainly around looking for a dead relative who might be responsible in some way for the death of, of the living relatives who were dying of consumption. Now, to consumption, let's let's define what that is. It was probably, in most cases, pulmonary tuberculosis. So it would be tuberculosis that settled in your lungs. And it was an insidious disease for several reasons. For one, it wasn't like a fast-burning disease, like smallpox or scarlet fever, you know, where you would get sick, and then you would die or you would recover because there weren't too many treatments for these things. 
but consumption was with a disease that could settle in you inside of you, say in your lungs mostly. And it could be dormant for a while. You wouldn't even know you had it. And so all this time you're still infecting other people. Uh, but once it started to take hold of, of, of you, uh, it would be deteriorating your lungs. And so day by day, week by week, sometimes it would take months or even years for a person to die from uh, consumption. And why it was con- called consumption is because physically, it basically consumed your body. So you would get weaker and weaker. Your lungs would start to deteriorate, uh, harder to breathe. Uh, go to bed at night, you're lying on your back, and it feels like there's heavy weight on your chest because your lungs are collapsing. You're coughing up blood, and as the disease progresses, you cough up more and more blood, from teaspoonful of blood to cupsful of blood. So if your relatives come into your bedroom in the morning to, to check on you, and you've got blood at the corners of your mouth and on your bed clothes, well, they're thinking, my gosh, something is literally sucking the blood, the life out of this poor person. What was it? Ooh. Well, they didn't. It was the vampire was a, was a microscopic organism. And so the, the folk belief was that something was inside of you that was killing you, but it wasn't just inside of you, it was in one of your dead relatives also, who died from this, and some sort of evil spirit that inhabited that force, maybe in the vital organs, the heart, the lungs, or whatever, and it was using that as a base of operation to sympathetically, that is from a distance, take down the other members of the family, one at a time. And so to obviously to cure this, to kill it, you had to go and find out which of the which of the dead uh, family members was responsible. So the very first act of this ritual was usually to confront the corpse. And mostly that meant you had to exhume the body because mostly they had already been buried. And so you confront the corpse, you look for signs that it's still not completely dead, and you're looking for organs that had fresh blood in them. That is liquid blood. So if a heart had liquid blood when it was cut open, that was interpreted as fresh blood. So how would a corpse that's dead get fresh blood into it? Well, obviously, it was drawing the fresh blood from living relatives. And those are the ones who were dwindling away day by day and week by week because they were losing blood to this thing that was inhabiting the corpse. So we had to kill it, whatever it was. Usually you would do that by uh, cutting out the, the harmful organs, the ones that have fresh blood, and burn them. Usually burn them to ashes completely burn them. And then sometimes you would feed the ashes to people in the family who were sick. 
of the kind of medicine. Sometimes it was stipulated that it would be fed to somebody in uh, other kinds of medicine of some sort or water. And that was supposed to neutralize the evil. Did that have any success rate uh, from your studies? Have you found that that was actually something that was helping uh, the, the families that were dealing with this? Because we know that tuberculosis or consumption was... Um, yeah, well, it, maybe this is not that interesting, but I find it interesting that doing nothing uh, or going to a medical doctor or performing this folk ritual, the outcome was virtually about the same. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's like most diseases. Uh, some people will get well. Uh, some people will not recover and they'll die if nothing's done. Hmm. And if people went to medical doctors at this time, and we're talking about the throughout most of the 1800s and before, uh, they were of the Galenist tradition, medical doctors. And what that meant is they were looking for uh, humors in your body being unbalanced. And there were different humors. And to balance these humors, what they would do is is, uh, make you throw up or give you something that would be a diuretic. Uh, Or they would, in many cases, open a vein and bleed you. So think about that. You're sick and you're losing blood as it is, so you go to a doctor and he starts bleeding you. I mean, the fact is that's even going to make it worse yeah. than doing nothing or than going to the cemetery and exhuming a body and cutting out the heart and burning it and taking the ashes. So yeah, the outcomes were probably very similar. Can we talk a little bit more uh, about the humors in case people are unfamiliar with that? Because that was a, an antiquated um, system of medicine that a lot of people have no idea. Uh, but it's a, there's a very famous uh, painting that goes along with it, uh, dividing it into like the four different colors in the human body, starting right. with the core. And um, do you want to give us your... Uh, I don't know. There was, I think there was black bile and uh, another kind of bile and... Yeah, black, yellow, red, white. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they would check the bi- the color of the bile, and then they would like cross correlate it with um, other met forms of medicine. That was just it was really interesting. I mean, how uh, how the humors was. <laughs> embellished at this time because it was like one of the the long uh long lasting forms of medicine for so long and it seemed to be oh, effective yeah. but at it some started point with, it, the, with the ancient greeks mm. so it was you know a couple of thousand mm. years or longer that's a long time this basically ineffective medical treatment persisted well, again, it takes us back to that. It's a situation where it, it, there's no answer for you, but then you're going to find an answer somewhere else. Mm. Well, and then, you know, it may be harder for people in our time period to sort of wrap their heads around this uh, worldview of the ancient mind that wasn't separating 
uh, maybe the spiritual and the physical the same way the modern mind does, right? So a lot of what you look at uh, when you see, you know, the way people would deal with problems we would deal with differently now, you know, they're taking into account uh, their spiritual worldview, which was, I mean, mm-hmm. essentially all people had to a certain extent to educate themselves depending on their standing in society. I mean, you know, for the most part, if you were, were literate at all, it was because you had access to a Bible, you know, and, and so that's speaking only for the Western civilization. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's interesting to, to look at uh, how incompetent <laughs> the medical industry <laughs> has been in the past and also sort of uh, realize, well, they're, they're still somewhat incompetent uh, to a certain extent, although we have, you know, done many things to uh, mitigate tuberculosis. I mean, this is a relatively rare, I hope, thing to get nowadays. Um, how common is tuberculosis? That's not true. It's a worldwide condition right now. Millions of people die mm. of tuberculosis in the world yeah. every year. And are in some maybe more rural areas, do yeah. people still connect this sort of vampire lore to right. consumption? Well, one of the problems is that our, our microbic adversaries, like the tuberculosis bacillus, uh, they evolve. <laughs> it's like COVID. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you get an effective antibiotic for tuberculosis but because well here's an example Uh, in a place where let's say in uh, in prisons in Russia a good example where tuberculosis rampant because you're living in close close quarters and, and it's not sanitary and it's a very contagious disease. And so the authorities would give the prisoners antibiotics, but they wouldn't give them the full treatment because it was expensive. These were just people that were castaways anyway. They weren't important. So why bother giving them full treatment? Well, what that does is partially, it's a selects for the stronger uh, bacteria. And so they evolve. They evolved to the point where whatever antibiotic treatments or combinations to cocktails of antibiotics you're using aren't effective anymore. And that's what's, what's happened with, with tuberculosis worldwide. Mm. It's becoming increasingly difficult to, uh, to eradicate it with you know, the antibiotics that we uh, created starting in the in the early 1940s with, like, with streptomycin. That was the first effective, really effective treatment for tuberculosis, aside from just isolating people so they didn't infect other people, and also creating sanitary, at a sanitary environment. Well, and, and how much of that is, is, you know, to blame, I guess blame isn't really the right word, but how much is that responsible for, uh, let's say, the lack of tuberculosis in certain areas uh, as opposed to others, right? Is it the standard through which our hygiene has, you know, raised considerably that we can, you know, thank for for not getting mm-hmm. tuberculosis as often? Is that all it is? That's a very important, that's a very important 
aspect of it. Right. Mm-hmm. You're eliminating the, the conditions where these, where the bacteria can thrive. Mm-hmm. But and, and it's, it's like the, you know, they call it herd immunity and so on. Once, once you've got a population there where it's very, 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 very few people have this condition, then it's, it's hard for it to take hold and spread. Right, right. Yeah, it definitely feels like, you know, as much as antibiotics have helped people, and I've, I've used them at certain points in my life to get over certain bacterial infections, and, you know, it's it's almost seems futile to try to uh, use these antibiotics in the long term uh, because of that what you just described this na- the nature of promulgation you know living beings they evolve they they want to survive and when you put a pressure on them they adapt to that pressure to, to thrive quickly. yeah quickly well, some, as well when people look at you know you, you can look at the human body for example from the point of view of, of bacteria we're, you know mm-hmm. we're the host we're the universe and uh, they're just trying to uh, maintain their existence, and they depend on, you know, the host. So. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's, and then you have to thus. Uh, I, I'm heavily uh, in the in the field of you can take care of a lot of bacterial function in your body through diet. You really can. Um, And, you know, obviously it's not the, I'm not going to say you can get rid of every disease and bacterial uh, infection through just eating more carrots or or whatever. Um, But, you know, it's a great way to start. And there's also a lot of uh, really cool um, practices with uh, magnets and like magnetism and like kind of like affecting different parts of uh, like putting a heavier um, charge into a certain area where you have a bacterial infection and it's uh I mean, you know, it's just as effective as some of the folk medicine, kill, really. I wouldn't say it's more effective. You don't want to kill by all the bacteria in your body. No, 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 no. We, you need it. We absolutely. Some, you know, yeah. we have some in our gut mm-hmm. that are absolutely necessary for us to live, to, to be able to process food. That's serious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you've, ever had, if you've ever had a problem where you've had to take strong antibiotic. That kills everything in your gut. I had to go through this at one mm-hmm. point. Yep. Because it was just persistent. And so the, the medical profession said, well, here's the, what we have to do. We're going to have to kill all the bacteria that you have, but you're going to have to reestablish, you know, the good stuff. Mm-hmm. So after the, they, they kill all the bacteria in your gut, then you take uh, things like probiotics, you know, yogurt, yogurt culture or whatever. Mm. You have to reestablish uh, that biosome, that biosphere in, in your gut. So, you know, we have to be realistic and be selective about, you know, how we, how we pinpoint wh- what's the bad part and fill that and leave the good things. It's complicated and yeah. our little microbe adversaries, uh, you know, they don't care one way or the other. They just continue to evolve, and they evolve so rapidly because their lifespan is so short. Their generations are so short that they can evolve the 
more quickly than scientists can keep up with uh, trying to head them off and trying to prevent them from killing us. So that's the that's one of the challenges and also the fascinating parts about the medicine. Trying to stay, you know, more than one step behind. Trying to stay one step ahead right. of our adversaries. Yeah. And that's very, it's very difficult. We're still not, we'll never be, I don't think we'll ever be out of the bacterial woods like that. So the the specific uh, cases of New England, like I know we know that there was consumption and happening all over the states at this at earlier uh, in, in in history, but it was seemed to be consolidated in in this area of uh, the Northeast. And why do you think that was? And um, or was that the only place that was really known about? Was it happening as densely in other places of the country? Uh, well. First of all, other places in the country weren't as as uh, densely settled yeah. As, yeah. as the Northeast. And people from the Northeast, you know, eventually were moving west. And out west, out west in the early 1800s, that was Ohio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's called the Old Southwest. That was like Arkansas. So you you know, it's all relative, right? And so the Northeast, the New England, then was the center that in the mid-Atlantic states was pretty much the center of, of the United States in the early years. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the Industrial Revolution in America began at Slater Mill in Pawtucket, Rhode Island in the early 1790s. And that's about the time when consumption started really uh, wreaking havoc in this area. Wow. So industrial industrialization meant putting more people together in places like the mills and the mill villages instead of being spread out, you know, on the farms where you've got more fresh air and and you're outside a lot. Now you're cooped up, you know, in this mill, which mm-hmm. is, is is noisy and polluting and dangerous to start with, and they're there with other people who, you know. If somebody gets a cold who's working next to you, you're going to get it. And then that other person, and then you're going to take it home and your family's going to get it. So, and that's the same thing with uh, tuberculosis, that kind of propinquity being next to people all the time. And I think that's why that was the period when consumption started really to become a problem too. Now, what what do you think was being uh, produced at the mills? Like, was there a specific product that might have uh, induced induced uh, tuberculosis? Like, was it paper making, um, or was there like a specific well, most mill? Of the, most of the mills in in New England in the early days, besides you know mills for uh, processing grain, you know, grinding corn and stuff like that, uh, they were textile mills. There were there are different sorts of different operations involved in textiles. You know, a lot of it is yeah, it's polluting and dirty inside. People would get what's called brown lung. You know, miners get black lung from the coal dust, but people would get what was called brown lung from just the, the byproducts of, of the whole process of making uh, uh, cloth. 
Well, it seems like a compounding of factors, right? Because you have all this dust, you have a bunch of people who shouldn't normally be living that close together on such a consistent basis. They were probably working much longer hours than people work these days. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, there were no exactly. labor laws back then. So you well, have... There was, Go ahead. Yeah. They were you know, working long hours, and it wasn't just uh, adults either. The children were working in the mills. You know, they were doing jobs that the adults couldn't do because they were smaller and they get into smaller spaces and things like that. Uh, it, it took it took a long time before the labor laws were put into place to kind of relieve these conditions and and, and also keep the keep children from having to go into these uh, terrible work environments. Well, and also, you know, at that time, London was was. Uh, you know, a very <laughs> filthy place, and you have all these people packing onto ships, which, you know, they'd have to be on for several months before they even got to the New World. So even that scenario doesn't seem like it would, uh, you know, lend to health. You know, this is like a compounding of several different factors. Right. And then, of course, the Native Americans uh, not being accustomed to uh, European sort of microculture, they were... Right you know, had to assimilate very quickly to the new bacterias being brought mm. over. And I'm sure that led yeah, to a lot perfect. of, a lot of conflict, you know, spiritual conflict. I, I've even read things about, you know, the native Americans interpreting, uh, this as a sort of spiritual omen that people were passing away so much and that they had made a mistake by befriending the colonists. And this was their, their punishment for it. And, you know, it, it, I think that's, Kind of, again, you know, the way folklore and a person's worldview affects uh, their interpretation of something that we now know uh, as, you know, these micro invaders or yeah. these are micro uh, bacterial adversaries, as you say. And I think that's a really brilliant way to put it. Because before uh, we had microscopes, I mean, we really couldn't tell what was going on um, mm -hmm. uh, in this well, realm. Disease is often interpreted as a, as a punishment, either from, you know depending on your your spiritual or religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. you know, punishment by God, or you know, in, in a modern in a modern setting, people talk about like karma, this kind of diffuse uh, this diffuse power to. Uh, to punish people who do wrong. You know, it's kind of like what goes around, comes around, doing to others. So now if people get a disease that's hard to cure, in a sense, uh, some people might interpret that as, as, a, as a, a punishment for something you've done. It's karma coming back to get you. Yeah, it's violating. You're violating what is called the golden rule. Mm. You know, in the Christian religion, to do unto others as you would have others do unto you. What do you believe about uh, about the the energy and the the folklore behind karma? Well, I, I'm, I'm talking about the modern kind of popular culture uh, notion of karma. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I, I think it's very comforting for people to believe that. It's, you know, you'll get your just rewards somewhere, sometimes, somehow. But the harm you do will come back uh, to bite you. I mean, and that's a, I think that's a comforting thought for many people because when things are out of your hands and out of your control, then you can always turn to the notion that, well, this person's going to get their just rewards when the time comes. And it's always, in a sense, it's, it's satisfying to believe that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You want to in, a, in a balanced and fair world. Right. Well, it's a, it's a good... Well, it's not it's, a balanced and fair world. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good way to help you sleep at night in, in an ever growing, uh, chaotic society. I, I would yeah. say. And I think it's also a way to diffuse anger and aggression. Mm. Yeah. You don't feel that you have to personally take on whatever this evil is or confront this person that you think is harmful or bad. You can be at peace thinking, okay, well, this person's going to get right. their just rewards. And I don't have to worry about it because that spiritually that's going to happen beyond me. Right. Well, and, and we'd hope that, that people are given this sort of golden rule at a young age because if not, we end up with uh, sinister characters like Lady Bathory. I mean, I don't know exactly what happened to her in her life that convinced her to bathe in <laughs> blood, but I want to, you know, maybe to segue back to the, the topic of vampires. Have vampires always been in folklore associated with disease or is it a more murkier ground than that because with someone like uh lady bathory i mean she she's by all accounts a, a sort of serial killer um and yeah. you know we have a much different folklore around these sort of figures in modern culture yeah. but in the past would vampires kind of be a catch-all for you know evil things that they couldn't yeah. understand the vampire is, is a classic scapegoat Oh, it's something you can blame for, for, for when things go wrong. You want to have, you want to have a, a cause. Kind of like karma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, no, it wasn't always, it, it wasn't always associated. Vampires were not always associated with disease or a particular disease. But it was with any unexplained series of deaths. You know, we're talking about the, the, the vampire belief in Europe, you know, in its early earlier stages. Yes. In the, uh, particularly. And so if you're within a village, let's say in the, you know, 1400s, and somebody dies and don't really know why, they don't notice that cause, and then someone else dies, and someone else dies, and maybe it's people in one family who are dying, then you have to start looking for a cause beyond the natural world. And you don't have to. But that's what people did oftentimes. And that's why they would go to the cemeteries and, and assume the bodies and see if one of them was uh, not quite dead. And so it was causing the deaths of, of people, either out of revenge or 
uh, because they were jealous or because the people that that were dying that didn't uh, perform the, their right social rituals when they should have or how they should have done that. So in, in the vampire belief as it existed in, in Europe, it was a pretty elaborate cultural system. So there were, you know, lots of reasons for someone to become a vampire. Maybe just as simple as the cat walking across the court. So, so you had to observe, you know, all of these uh, social relationships and also had to observe the right in the right way to make sure that someone, you know, stayed dead. They didn't come back to the realm of the living to try to make things right or to get revenge. So it wasn't just a disease, but could be accident. People having accidents. And in in most folk belief systems, you know, there are no there are no accidents. Things don't just happen. There's always a cause. And so the uh, the folk system will help direct you toward finding a cause. Mm-hmm. Once you find yes. the cause, then you can uh, alleviate the situation. You can cure it, or you can get rid of whatever it is that's that's uh, making the, your situation uh, unhealthy or disastrous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a need for for the human mind to almost put things into a narrative or a story, and I wonder if that ultimately is a survival mechanism that's of benefit. You know, this this propensity for people to want to grasp uh, to a story or a narrative that explains something otherwise unexplainable, and I think folklore yeah. often takes that uh, role, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, narratives narratives make things concrete. So if you tell a specific story about a you know a certain person at a certain time, you know you're you're filling in a context that gives it a reality. You know, and the story the story gives it a reality rather than just giving you some abstract theory about something. If you can tell a story that relates how things unfolded and why they unfolded, it gives you, uh, it also gives you, you know, a map for the future, a path to take for the future. When you tell a story about, oh, this is, this is what happened to, to Mercy, and this is what we did to get out of the situation, and you tell this, you know, that that story, then someone else can take that and apply it maybe in a situation that's similar in their own lives. Do you uh, mind telling us uh, or and the audience one of the more famous stories of um, the New England vampires? Because Mercy Brown is a very popular story um, in this in this realm and in your book. Do you mind telling telling us one of these stories of the family uh, that was uh, that, that was uh, heavily affected and accounted to be vampires back in the day? If I'm not mistaken, John. Oh, I can't remember his name. Uh, John. Hmm? Are you thinking of Josiah Spaulding? 
It might be Josiah. I know it starts with a J. This gentleman starts with a J. But uh, from Vermont or from Vermont. Connecticut or Dummerston, Vermont. Yeah. Are you yeah. asking me to tell you my favorite? Please. Yeah, yes, we'd love also, to hear your favorite yes. one. Yeah. Please. It's kind of like asking a parent, you know, who's your favorite child? <laughs> it's like, wait on it. Oh, there's so many. Uh, well, they're I'm not going to say interesting. That's such a weak word, but they're dramatic, fascinating uh, stories that I found. I'm up to around 86 or 87 cases in in the New England area, extended. Uh, so it's. Some of them are just, there are no, there's really hardly any story attached to it. And some of them are so uh, detailed that you can, you can put a face on the people involved. You know their names, do the genealogy and the other research, the census records, so you can find out about them and you can create an entire narrative of, of what happened to this this family or this community because of uh, consumption, because they undertook this ritual. One of the most interesting ones uh, happened in Belchertown, Massachusetts, in 1788. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but the Reverend Justice Forward who was the Congregational Minister of this town, uh, Belchertown, in the Connecticut River Valley in Massachusetts, uh, wrote a letter to a friend of his who was in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And in the letter, he described how he was going to another town with his daughter, whose name happened to be Mercy. And he said, in the letter, he said, you can imagine how concerned I was when she started hemorrhaging. He said, because you know that I've had several daughters already die of consumption. And Mercy is sick. And now it looks like she's dying. And so I wondered, and he's writing this in, in his letter, I wondered if it was possible for the dead to prey on the living. So he goes on in the letter and he says, I, I called a consultation. And he's the minister, the congregational minister, and also was the medical doctor, like you said about uh, Winthrop from Connecticut, the governor. You know, people in a position of authority in those days, the early days, also had to be you know, medical doctors and, and a lot of other things. So he asked the consultation that he called together, he, whether he should exhume the bodies of some of his family to try to determine if the dead were playing praying on the living. And uh, you can read between the lines in the letter, apparently uh, not everybody thought that was a good idea, but eventually he said they consented. And there were some medical doctors in, involved in this consultation too. And so he said, well, we decided to go and dig up the body of my mother-in-law in a nearby town. She she was from Hatfield, 
And he said, we didn't find what we supposed we would find. In other words, she was too decomposed. So he, so he says in the letter, then said, then the next day, that would have been yesterday from his letter. He's describing what just happened two days and, and one day before. He said, then we decided to exhume the body of, the body of my daughter, Martha Dwight. She was a young married woman, but her last name had been changed to Dwight. And he said, he described how the doctors described her body. And it's almost uh, clinical in description. One of the doctors said it was, well, it was like, uh, it was like, almost like they were describing pain that was slaughtered and hung up. That's how they're describing what they were seeing. They used those terms. And they decided that, yes, there was a, there was a amount of blood in her, in her vital organs. So they cut those out and put them in a, a, a separate box and then buried them about a foot above the coffin and he buried it. Wow. Mercy died. One foot above the coffin? Yeah, about a foot above the coffin, he said. Wow, oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, they... Okay, keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know. Would you like to hear the letter? Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't do it justice. If you want me to read the letter, if you don't mind, that'd be fine. Yeah. You can edit it if you want or whatever. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. Well, this letter was written uh, Monday, July 21st, 1788. He said, respected sir, and that's to his friend, Colonel Elijah Williams of Stockbridge, Mass. While I was on my journey to Stratford, my daughter was taken with bleeding inwardly at Hartford and raised blood several times since. You must think that these things excited great concern in a parent whose family was so wasted with consumption, three dead with it, and two more in imminent danger of death. I had consulted many about opening the graves of some of the deceased to see whether there were any signs of the dead praying on the living. And though many advised to it, and most thought it awful, they consented. And last Friday, Mother Dickinson's grave was open. That was Mother. She had been buried almost three years. Nothing appeared like what was represented in Mr. Smith's son. Here's, so obviously he knew about another case in this family named Smith, and they were looking for signs that I guess they saw in Mr. Smith's son. Uh, she was wasted away to a mere skeleton when she died. The coffin had moisture in it towards the foot. Face fallen into the bones and lungs consuming as fast as any part did not probably adhere together. It seemed like a meal, a little wettish. Dr. Scott of this town opened the body. We did not try to separate the lungs from the body, but buried it again. It was suggested that perhaps she was not the right person. Since I had begun to search, I concluded to search further. And this morning opened the grave of my daughter, Dwight, 
She had died the last of my three daughters almost six years ago. She was considerable fleshy when she died, quite so six or seven weeks before death. On opening the body, the lungs were not dissolved, but had blood in them, though not fresh, but clotted. The lungs did not appear as we would suppose they would in a body just dead, but near a state of soundness than could be expected. The liver, I am told, was as sound as the lungs. We put the lungs and liver in a separate box and buried it in the same grave of 10 inches or a foot above the coffin. As I never saw any grave opened, save to receive the dead, before I am I am unable to judge how long after burial it is before bodies usually are reduced to dust, and these instances do not determine it. One being as to the lungs more reduced in three years than the other in six. How shall I leave you and others to make what speculations you think proper upon this matter? matter? Only observing that the soil in which the persons were buried was very different. Hatfield between a sand and a loam, the other sand and gravel with many roundish stones. As a P.S. Since writing the above, I have conversed with Dr. Scott, who opened the body. He said the lungs and liver appeared to him much in such a state as he should suppose they would in a creature which was opened and hung up till it began to taint. There was blood in the lungs, perhaps several spoonfuls together which appeared to him much like the blood drawn from a person's arm that had stood 26 hours. J.F. Wow, just thinking wow. about, you know, being a father and having to do that is very, uh, I mean, that's heavy. That's a very, pretty heavy thing to do. You know, sure. not only the, his three his three daughters, but is also his mother-in-law. Well, um, well, hold on now, Roman. I don't know if the mother-in-law died of tuberculosis, but I did find it funny that that was his first uh, his first culprit that he went <laughs> yes. after. Oh, that, you yes. know, that's the first inclination in our culture that because because the mother-in-law is such a, a figure of whatever. Yeah. That you think, oh yeah, the mother-in-law, of course. But <laughs> right, I, I'm sure he wasn't thinking along those lines that in 1788. But there's so many amazing things about this uh, case. And, and the letter to me is, you know, it's extraordinary for someone who was, a, you know, the minister of a congregation. And he was the minister of that church for over 50 years. This was in the early years of his ministry. But he, he was there for about 55 years as, as the minister. Right. And to me, it's so, it's so matter of fact. That he's talking about, and he was also a scientist. He's talking about the soil. Maybe the soil in the two different cemeteries was, was so different that, that that accounts for the difference in the decomposition. Hmm. And I think it's also interesting that he said, having never seen a dead body before, you know, after it's been in the ground. So that's another uh, significant concept. Is that yeah? He's the congregational minister. He saw lots of dead people because he had ministered, you know, at their funerals, and and viewing the dead body was a tradition. And they forced they forced young children to go and look at the dead body. 
They wanted you to confront death because that was your ultimate destination. So they wanted you to start being comfortable with the idea of death from the very beginning of your life until you died. And so he didn't know what happened to bodies after they decomposed. And then the doctor who's talking about it in terms of hanging up game until it tainted, or what blood would would look like 26 hours after you're drawn. And he would know because he was drawing blood from people as part of their you know, humorous humor. Yeah, trying to get back in balance, so they're they're bleeding you. So he would knew he knew what blood would look like after yeah. several hours. Yeah, it, it's very interesting to to think of you know this time period when the modern anatomy probably wasn't readily available. Uh, you know, they didn't have books they could refer to to see what you know the the dissected body of a human looked like so yeah and even to to see you know stages of decomposition i'm curious you know how much go ahead that that raises such a great point because that's why i think medical doctors were at these exhumations or quite a quite often medical doctor would be there and for one reason would be just out of curiosity to be able to see and, you know, actually uh, by opening up a person's body and looking at the organ stuff, they, they could see what, what goes on. And there was a whole, uh, you can call it an occupation or a profession, they were called resurrectionists. They were body stealers. So they would go out and steal bodies to take to, to, to the medical colleges who would buy them so that the students and the doctors themselves could uh, could perform uh, uh, autopsy. Yeah. The early organ donors, right? Well, and, and, and well, were, you know, that's the thing is that people in those days weren't donating their bodies <laughs> to science, so they had to go out at night and and, and resurrect them. Yeah. Well, and, and only only less than maybe like a century later, we have, you know, exhumations of tombs in Egypt and, you know, mummified bodies are found. And when you mentioned how the organs were separated and buried in a different box, that image of mm-hmm. mummification came to mind because that's a, a part of mummification. They remove certain organs and separate them right. from the coffin. Is there uh, any anything that you've learned about uh, that you know, maybe more ancient folklore that connects to what you've seen in, in New England uh, this time period? Well, they're, they're called vital organs because of that's, um, that's where the, the seat of your soul was at one time. Mm-hmm. It was believed to actually was the heart. Now I think we, we think of the brain as being, you know, the seat of, of, of life or humanity. Because this is where, you know, this is where we we think our mind is. This is how we think. But in the early years, it was it was the blood that was the life, and it was the heart that was important because the heart was the was the organ that pumped the life through your body, pumped the blood. And so that's why, in most cases, they were looking for fresh blood in the heart, because that's where that's where the seed of the life was. That's where, that's where your soul was. So the belief 
as it existed in, in New England, I think was uh, more of a spiritual connection between family members and the dead body. It was a sympathetic connection. It wasn't, there were no, no dead bodies coming out of the grave and attacking their family members, biting their necks, sucking their blood. None of that. It was one outlier case of that. And, and that's, you know, that could be an elaborate, an elaboration to make it a better story. I'm not sure. But in all the cases, except one that I found that there's no, uh, talking about the bodies, the dead person coming back to harm the living. And it wasn't even that they were blaming someone like the mother-in-law or the daughter or Mercy Brown for killing family members. It was that there was some evil thing that had inhabited the body of this corpse. Mm. So the soul had already departed. Wherever it was going to go, it had departed. And in the meantime, something evil, an evil angel is called it sometimes, that occupied this person's uh, body, taking residence, say, in the heart. And from there, it was drawing life out of the family members, maybe even literally blood, but drawing the life out from a distance, we call it sympathetically. So the implicit in this belief is that the connection between the living and the dead is never completely severed. Right. Right. It's very well it's like after death it still can exist. Yeah. And so you have to eliminate that harmful connection by killing the evil that's that's that keeps the uh, that keeps that conduit, that evil fatal conduit alive. Mm. Yeah, it, it seems like there's a parallel and a, and a big difference with the witch trials, right? Maybe, uh, you know, different in the sense that people who fell victim to consumption, uh, they weren't necessarily thought of as the original source of the vampire. Rather, the, the vampire had taken over them. This evil had had altered who they were whereas maybe right. witches were more considered like responsible for creating uh the sure. evil right were witches ever associated with vampire cases people sort of trying to pin it on witches or uh, would be witches no not in new england as far as i can tell these, these were two separate traditions i think they you know I, I would say the wellspring of tradition that informed both of these traditions um, is there, but they're they're divergent in separate traditions. Hmm. I don't see a I don't see a direct connection at all between let's say the Salem witch trials of, of 1692 and Mercy Brown of 1892, hmm. except in the in the realm of those so-called magical beliefs right. in the realm of, of the unseen and the unknown, uh, uh, evils and dangerous, dangerous things. 
I'm curious if in any of your um, studies of vampirism in history, you've come across the Renfield syndrome as opposed to tuberculosis, um, which is the more, uh, I guess it's probably more well-known than tuberculosis as a vampiric case because this one involves actual like fascination with blood and drinking blood. Um, so people actually call it medical vampirism or uh, auto vampirism. And I'm wondering um, how many cases you've come across uh, that have the Renfield syndrome. Well, I haven't found them in historically in, in, the, in the, the corpus of data that I, that I'm mining. Uh, but the, I can, I can refer you to, uh, to a scholar who does study that now and has written several books about it. And his name's John Edgar Browning. And, uh, he did a PhD dissertation actually on so-called real vampires. I think, I think, uh, he did a kind of an ethnography of this in uh, New Orleans. So yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole, call them folk groups if you want mm -hmm. people who you want to call it the Renfield uh, syndrome yeah yeah it's interesting they're vampires in the sense that they require uh, they require human blood to maintain a healthy existence mm. and it, you mentioned New Orleans and I noticed you um, for your uh, PhD maybe or your master's I don't remember um, you wrote a, about African American voodoo and I'm curious mm -hmm. if the mm -hmm. vampire is found in that uh, tradition or maybe something similar uh, because I know New Orleans is steeped in uh, many ma African uh, you know magical rituals I mean even the whole Mardi Gras festival has the whole cruise the mystical cruise that uh, you know symbolize everything from Osiris to Merlin you know on the, in these parades <laughs> they do so yeah there's clearly a mystical culture going on down there but is there a vampire within that uh, that particular magical worldview uh, well, some people think so. Uh, I have uh, I don't I don't see it here. I I was reading a book about that someone had written about vampires in New Orleans. Uh, I'm not convinced. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have heard that uh, the Count. I think there may maybe more legend than historical documentation behind it but. yeah yeah i would i would support that uh, based solely on the fact that the vampire i've heard of uh is also blamed to be or or suspected to be the count saint germain and anytime you see his name associated <laughs> uh, there's usually you know some funny business going on to say the least but yeah uh that that is an interesting time period early uh, 20th century New Orleans and, you know, mm -hmm. how the voodoo yeah. culture even made its way into popular music. I mean, Robert Johnson and selling his soul to the devil. You have to wonder if that oh, yeah. came from the, the voodoo. Yeah, go to the crossroads. Right, right. Crossroads at midnight, that's where it happens. Wow, wow. According now, to folk tradition. 
Now, isn't there something about the crossroads or, or maybe a way to prevent vampires by doing something at the crossroads, burying something at a crossroads? Yeah, well, the crossroads is a, is a great place to shed some sort of evil. Okay. Because that's a crossroad is, you know, literally and metaphorically, that's where people are going to be passing by a lot. So let's say if you want to get rid of a, of a wart, you can take a steel dish rag, here's one way to do it, and rub it on your wart and bury it at the crossroads. And then the next person coming by will, will get your wart. And so it'll leave you. And in fact, there's a for removing a sty, you can do the same thing, a sty on your eye. And then you say the little charm, sty, sty, leave my eye and pass the next one, pass, and, and take the next one passing by. So, yeah. Yeah, the crossroads is a place to, to shed evil and to encounter supernatural things, too. Excommunicated people who were considered not worthy of being buried, let's say, in the cemetery. Sometimes they were buried no, at, at the crossroads. Yikes. Huh. Yeah, that's uh, certainly a potent place, as you say, mm -hmm. uh, an intersection where many people pass by interstitial space you know a boundary of more than just uh, right. <laughs> you know two roads but maybe two realms yeah yeah the melting pot sort of, of humanity the crossroads right right and america certainly has that national ideation of being a melting pot and when you consider all of the different uh, esoteric cultures that have found, uh, you know, a foundation made a foundation settled into America. It's this mystical melting pot. You know, you have all these uh, folklores from European to African to the native folklores that were already present, all sort of blending and fusing into maybe what became the uh, culture of the mid 20th century, right? This sort of, uh, uh, tune in or tune out drop out kind of movement and, and people you know trying to explore uh, the world beyond like maybe their grandfathers couldn't have imagined being all wrapped up in things like the depression and the world wars you know this this great uh, uplifting and nourishment of the human soul I mean sure the drug um, you know onslaught kind of hampered that movement there was uh, there was a a kernel of, I would say, enlightenment that occurred in that time period, and and maybe the melting pot of mystical cultures was responsible for that. I don't know, just my sort of uh, waxing over here. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> well, this is a. Uh, I've been corresponding with someone from the the UK. Who's, who's uh, studying vampires? And uh, he didn't know that much about, you know, the American tradition. And so, even though he's very knowledgeable about 
worldwide vampire traditions. What happened here, he's still trying to fathom how it's, why and how it's so, in a sense, different from its European, uh, where it probably came from, from its European origins. Mm -hmm. And I think that one reason is, is because we are so diverse in terms of where people have come from here. Beginning even early, not, not everybody was from the southeast of England in, in the colonies. Right. And so there were people com coming from all over, all over the world, and especially if you include the, the enslaved people that were brought here, you know. Yeah. Not real, but people... People don't leave their folk, like you suggested, people don't leave their folklore behind. It comes with them. And, and if, it, if it doesn't work, if you can't make it work, then it becomes maybe just part of memory culture. But people are adaptive, and, and, and of course, because folklore is from people, of people, is people, then the folklore is also adaptive. It's dynamic. It can change the circumstances. It doesn't stay the same all the time. Yeah. Now adaptive folklore. Now, when it comes to uh, the more modern sort of investigations, I want to ask you about something. There was a case uh, relatively recently, within the past couple of decades, where some teenagers in Connecticut—I think it was Jewett City—they, uh, you know, threw their baseball oh. onto a rock pile or something. They're digging around in these rocks trying to find something, and they unearthed the skeleton. And of course, you know, they call in the police, and the police say, "Well, this isn't really our jurisdiction. You need to call a, an archaeologist to talk to figure out this one." And uh, it turned out that this person that was uh you know buried in this unmarked grave was connected to vampire lore somehow and i'm wondering you know how much of that story has been uncovered you know working with what was there you know you had to piece it together from the from the future into the past were we able to find out who that person was could you do genealogy with that sort of case i mean what what's well, they, the scoop yeah, well, the, you're talking about the case of J.B. It's called J.B. because on his coffin lid, spelled out in brass tacks, was J.B. 55, which presumably were, were his initials and probably the age of his, his age when he died, age 55. And yeah, there's been a lot of research now done by not only archaeologists, by, but with the DNA, DNA experts, and so we actually have a name now for JB. It's John Barber. And NB was buried next to him. It said, I think it said NB 13. That was probably his son, Nathan Barber, who died around that age. Scholars have now found, researchers have found uh, an obituary for Nathan Barber. And that's where the name John came from, his father, John. So uh, yeah, that's a very interesting case, and it continues to evolve as, as more and more information becomes available. But his JB had been exhumed after burial, maybe 10 years or so, and then his head had been removed and turned 
in the opposite direction, and then his two thigh bones, the femurs, had been removed and put in a cross across his chest. Then the head was placed on those. Wow. And then he was reburied. And, and was that a common thing to do at the time, to make that sort of uh, symbol with the skull and the femur bones? It wasn't common. It wasn't common in in New England tradition, but it has precedent in Europe, including Great Britain. Right. Well, I recently learned about these European, uh, or in England, they have these men called the Bonesmen, who would you know, dig up bones for various reasons, uh, whether for you know bone meal or who knows what. But uh, yeah, they they had that uh, emblem of the skull and crossbones, you know, like the Jolly Roger pirate flag, even too. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. Well, there was a whole tradition of medicine called the Paracel, you know, the Paracelsian tradition, where they would look for human body parts to use as medicine. It was called mamia or mummy. In fact, that comes from, originally they were getting uh, parts of, of mummies from, from Egypt. Mm-hmm. Mummy dust. Yeah. And then it expanded. Mamia became almost any kind of uh, human body part. You could even, you know, scrape the skull and get stuff to use. Yeah, the, the Paracelsian uh, tradition of medicine is quite fascinating. I've been down that rabbit hole. Um, mm-hmm. Another another t- uh, name for a lot of that stuff is called medical cannibalism because they would, yeah. in fact, eat... Medicinal cannibalism, which is, yeah. in a sense, that was going on in, in New England, only in a, in a different form. You yes. Burning things and then taking the ashes. Mm-hmm. So burning is a purification ritual. And Paracelsus was also, he was deep in alchemy as well. And he was running um, in the circles of famous alchemists in that, in the time of, I think he was 16th, 17th century. And yeah, he, he's made a huge, he, he, even though he was doing a lot of really interesting tactics, he, he broke away from humors though, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think he, he kind of, stood foot on the humors and he's known as the father of toxicology paracelsus i think um yeah he he definitely made some big big strides that is used today but obviously most of everything else is thrown to the wayside um and that tradition did come to new england too the paracelsian tradition Mm. oh i see yeah through who uh well, there was a, a, a Puritan minister, for one, who was into that tradition. Uh, there was... He wrote poetry about it, talking about, you know, using his own son's body parts. Mm-hmm. There was a... Uh, it, wasn't uh, strong, it wasn't strong in this country, but it was here. Yeah. There's a school, a Paracelsian school by Frater Albertus. Um, who wrote the book, um, the Handbook of Alchemy, um, and and but that school has thus been shut down, and Frater Albertus was running circles with Manly P. Hall um, back in the day, and Manly P. Hall made some appearances at the Paracelsian school as well. 
So there, it definitely was here, and he had some. And that, there was folklore tied into the Paracelsian medicine, definitely. Like it was, there's like some interesting spiritual superstition as well as high academic, and at that time, very, very, very well received in the medical world. And what was cool about Paracelsus, in my in my looking at him, that he um, wouldn't do his lectures in Latin. He would do them in German, which was like the the lay people's speak, so that so that uh, the the good you know the good people of the community could understand what he was trying to bring. And his colleagues looked at him like with a frown, like why why would you speak in German? Like we are speaking in Latin and doing course in Latin. You don't want the the lay people to know what we are talking about. But that's what he did. So. I could talk all day about Paracelsus. I really do, and I do enjoy that history. It's it's beautiful. Um, I want to ask you, um, as we might be on the uh, on the tail end of our chat, uh, what's one of the the more strange? Well, we talked about burning the heart and eating the ashes as as a form of um, kind of like uh, preventative measures of vampirism, and then we talked about the skull and crossbones with the JB case. Uh, but what is there any other uh, really strange, weird practices that they would do that that stuck out to you in your research? Well, but, <clears throat> there's one element that I think is, I don't know how weird or strange it is. It, to me, it's, it's still a mystery. And that is in a number of cases, they were looking for a vine that was growing either out of the corpse or through the coffin. Oh. Along with, so you would have to take that vine and cut it and burn it along with the vital organs in many cases. And, and in a few cases, the, the description of the vine was, well, it was growing out of the vitals of the corpse. And the belief was in some cases that if the vine, once the vine got out of the coffin and went to another coffin, then another person in the family was going to die. Whoa. So that's why... We would have to find the vine and destroy it. That's the case in, in Willington, Connecticut in 1784, which is the first case I found in New England. A, a foreign quack doctor had come to town as a, and, and told, him, told people he could cure consumption. And so he induced a man named Isaac Johnson to zoom the bodies of two of his children and, and to look for this vine. And if he found the vine, then he was to take it and take the vital organs out and burn them. Wow, that is fine. What they were looking for, so I think they just reburied the two, the two children. This this vine, it kind of reminds me of, uh, and I'm not going to remember the name of the disease, but these poor victims of whatever it is they grow these like microplastic fibers inside of their body and scientists have no clue why this is happening to people uh but that's very vine like i don't know if you've seen that uh but yeah it's it's fascinating (laughs) but i i haven't been able to find like the, the folklore pedigree of this belief about grave plants plants growing out of the out of the corpse or out of the coffin and so to me it's like how it came here where it came from yeah that is super something fascinating I'm searching for and I'm, 
I've looked and I've looked and I've asked other scholars who might be able to find this. And right now it's a mystery. But that's wow. why when you said weird, that's what came to my mind. So yeah, because right that's now it's, kind of, it's it's pedigree is a little inexplicable, but that is just another one of the yeah one of the many folklores behind you know a reason to. <laughs> Dig up a coffin of your loved one to see if you are going to get cursed or if anybody else in your family. It was a form of protection and a form of resistance against the, the vampire to to go dig up the graves. I mean, that's just I mean, in today's society to th- even consider doing something like that is mm-hmm. like almost blasphemy. So that's really fascinating. Another, wow. you know, this is kind of crazy because we we were just talking about Paracelsian stuff and. Uh, skull moss or usnia, which is the known as like wizard's beard too. It grows on oak trees a lot. It's a type of lichen. Um, specifically, will grow out of the skull of a deceased person that has been hung, for sure, definitely hung. So they would, and that was used, and that would thus be harvested um, to for medicinal purposes. Which is fascinating because the lichen itself only grows on specific host trees um, and a lot of times oak. And so that, I mean, if you're a Druid or study Druidism, like that's also very fascinating. Um, Yeah. Yes. So that's so cool. I've had a great chat uh, with you today. Yeah, Thank Uh, you so much, Dr. Bell. This has been so fascinating. You know, there's, there's, I mean, endless stories as you already know, Uh, but for the listeners who, who tuned in, where can they go to find more of your stuff? Obviously, we spoke about your, your book, Food for the Dead. Uh, is there a website that folks can go to to pick that up? Uh, do, you, do you have a preference in that realm or, or maybe something that you would like to share with our audience? No, it's, it's available through any, all, any and all the sources where you want to go and get your books. Wonderful. Food for the Dead, On the Trail of New England's Vampires. The newer edition is... Uh, 2011, published by Wesleyan University Press. So uh, I I would recommend the newer edition because there's a, a new preface and I talk about some of the newer things that I found and also update some things that are in the, the text itself. Hmm. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Well, Dr. Paul Roman, you. this has been fantastic. Uh Wow, thank you so much for your time. I, I hope we can uh, have you back on for another interview at some point. But uh, until next time, okay. have a wonderful okay. evening. And everyone tuning in, thank you for uh, checking out the show. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, well, if anybody uh, finds any new cases, let me know. <laughs> I'll be sure to do that. Um, I'm always looking for uh, new examples. Yeah. Because I know this is what I found is just the tip of a much larger iceberg. Mm. Wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. Thank you. All right, friends, thank you for tuning in to this Swapcast interview uh, with my friend Roman. Big shout out to him and his podcast, The Rising from the Ashes. 
He set this interview up with Dr. Michael E. Bell and was kind enough to uh, invite me to be a part of it. Uh, definitely interesting choice of guests based on uh, you know some of the things he said. I imagine he didn't know he was joining uh, two conspiracy theorists. <laughs> Maybe he would have uh, thought uh, otherwise, you know, about us if he knew. But he was a very nice guy, despite uh, holding some views that I think Roman and I don't quite agree with. Other than that, it was uh, a fantastic dive into uh, vampires and the history of disease in New England, right? And how uh, sometimes these supernatural phenomena can be uh, blamed for things that are, uh, well, I guess understood better now. I mean, I don't know how I really stand, where I really stand on all this, you know? <clears throat> the science of uh, microbiology and consciousness and where the two combine. I mean, I really do believe in the placebo effect. What if a community of people believe in a vampire so much that they uh, create one, so to speak? So, uh, I don't know. I think maybe our guest had a little bit of a uh, materialist mindset, but I could be wrong there. Uh, that is just my uh, you know, supposition based on one conversation and a brief review of his book, one book of his. So, yeah, I don't know. That's all I have to say for now, but if you want to hear more uh, of my thoughts, more bonus content, friends, please do support us on Substack, Patreon, or Rockfin, whichever you prefer. Those three are what we're working with right now. You can find us on Rumble and Odyssey, sure, but uh, we prefer to, well, I prefer to put stuff out on Patreon and Rockfin. Uh, and it seems to be working out. I might also try uh, YouTube memberships based on a uh, recommendation from my friend Juan. But uh, Juan and I will be doing bonus shows on the Patreon, so sign up. Big shout out to the uh, 10 or so people who have signed up in the last few weeks. Thank you so much. We can't do it without folks supporting the show. I mean, this is my uh, sole source of income outside of doing uh certain work for sam tripoli and odd got odd <laughs> odd jobs and gigs for all, all sorts of people i meet through podcasting so yeah it's a it's an interesting uh way to to go about it uh, i don't want to be sitting here begging uh for money every week but if we have more people supporting on the patreon i won't have to do that uh, substack is also a great option and i will be uploading all of the content on the Substack from here on out. I can't promise to upload the archives on uh, Patreon on the Substack, but I definitely think that uh, moving forward, I'm going to upload everything. Patreon, Substack, Rockfin, in that order, okay? In that order of importance. So uh, big shout out to all the artists who have reached out to us uh, after the last two episodes uh, giving a shout out for people to help out whether it's editing whether it's creating art creating music we need 
uh, a group of people here on this show to to help out. I can't do it all myself, and I'm really grateful to the people that have uh, shown up and heeded the call. So so far, I've I've gotten some really cool art from a person named Alice Bowie, who uh, I haven't used any of their art yet, but I will be. And then uh, we just put out an episode with John Brisson, and the artwork for that was created by someone who goes by Iconok on Instagram. That's spelled E-Y-E-K-O-N-O-K. And uh, they also have another Instagram, which is uh, T-I-K-U-N-K-I-T, Tkunkit, I think, so... But either way, those Instagrams are connected and they're making some really cool art. So go and check them out. Thank you for helping out with the the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, and the people who reached out about editing, uh, one person reached out about music, but uh, I would like uh, more people to, to reach out because he hasn't gone back to me. So if you're listening to this, get back to me um, and then I'll give you a shout out. <laughs> I think his name was Ben. Uh, but yeah. So big shout out to them. I really appreciate people coming uh, forward and saying, yeah, I'll help. Uh, You know, I can't promise to pay anybody just yet, but you stick with me long enough. And uh, and I think we'll be doing a lot of amazing things through this podcast, traveling, creating content around the country, uh, going to the guests to do interviews, all sorts of awesome uh awesome ideas that i have here and you can find more ideas on the substack we've got a substack my family thinks i'm crazy dot substack where i write articles you can also find podcasts and video content there um and then of course rockfin where for one price which some people have complained about the the price hike on rockfin i get it you know i have nothing to do with that um but for one price you can get all of Sam Tripoli's bonus content, Eddie Bravo's bonus content. You can get this show's bonus content and a lot of the guests that have been on this show. If you like the guests that have been on this show, most of them have their own Rockfin account. So uh, I would consider, you know, unsubscribing from Netflix or whatever streaming service you use and just going with Rockfin. Why not? We also have YouTube memberships, which I recently set up. So if you really prefer YouTube, you know, I I use YouTube. There's only, you know, a few podcasts that I check out on YouTube, but, you know, they don't post it anywhere else. I don't have the choice. But if you're already on YouTube, uh, you know, we have a membership platform now. And I don't really post the whole show on YouTube. So uh, you're not getting the whole you're getting the whole podcast uh there are so many episodes that can't go to youtube so uh really you know i don't encourage people to go to youtube but since esoteric america you know we don't really get into political or conspiracy theory type stuff too often on that show so i i figured Maybe we'll use the the YouTube for Esoteric America and, uh, you know, interviews with people like Dan Winters and, you know, uh, within the realm that YouTube thinks is, you know, uh, non-touchable, I guess, with whatever they're not going to touch, whatever they're not going to censor. I'm not trying to placate YouTube, but 
we have other options. We got Rockfin, we got Substack, Patreon. So if you want the real stuff, uncensored stuff, you know where to go for that. Uh, Esoteric America, it doesn't need to be censored. We're we're talking about very interesting topics that, uh, you know, for whatever reason at this point in time, don't uh, raise any alarms over there at YouTube. But who knows? Maybe one day, maybe one day. We did talk about... Uh, school shooters and MK Ultra in, in a couple episodes uh, when we were talking about Texas. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But anyways, that's about it for me, folks. I really do appreciate everybody who's been able to support the show with a one-time donation. Uh, that means the world to me. Can't keep this show going without uh, your kindness and your support. So, Get your donations in now, folks, and uh, next episode I'm going to put a big list together and give everybody a proper shout-out, but uh, do it while you can. Uh, Thanks, folks. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for tuning into the podcast, and uh, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Like a purpose, wait. I'm peeking through.
hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait.